Take your Bibles, turn along with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. During World War II, on the eve of D-Day, Supreme Allied Commander Dwight Eisenhower wrote the following letter in preparation for the great Allied landing at Normandy. This message was distributed to the 175,000 member expeditionary force the day before the invasion, which happened on June 6, 1944, now 79 years ago, almost to the day. This is what he said. Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on the fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940 and 41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. It's quite a letter. Letters such as this one help to inspire, to persuade, and to reassure those who are called to face great challenges. They also serve to remind the reader of the great purpose and importance of the monumental task that lies ahead. This was the purpose of Eisenhower's letter to the troops on the eve of D-Day. And this was one of the great purposes of the Apostle Paul's letter to Titus on the Isle of Crete. You may recall that Paul wrote to Titus with a very specific purpose in mind, a purpose we read of in Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul there says to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. This task that Titus was given by the Apostle Paul would not be an easy one. The enemy was formidable and had gained great ground. And yet, Titus had all that he needed to accomplish the task. 
Titus had been left on Crete with a clear mission to bring these various churches scattered across the island to greater maturity and order. And the first step in helping these churches achieve greater maturity and order was to select and put into place godly elders in the churches. That's the chief concern of the Apostle Paul in chapter 1. For there were many false teachers and unqualified leaders in the churches behind the pulpits and they were to be rebuked and then replaced by qualified servant leaders. Paul then in chapter 2 called Titus to a ministry of speaking. Speaking the things that are fitting of sound doctrine. Titus 2.15 is our text this morning. A text that reminds Titus of both the purpose and the means by which God would accomplish great things on the island of Crete for the kingdom. So with that in mind, let's look at Titus chapter 2 and verse 15. Titus is instructed by the Apostle Paul. Paul says, These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Beloved, this is the Word of God. Let's pray together. Lord, in the words of that ancient Anglican prayer, we ask, what we have not, give us. What we know not, teach us. What we are not, make us. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, I would like you to see along with me in this passage four marks of a faithful ministry of the Word. Four marks of a faithful ministry of the Word. It's important to be able to identify what a faithful ministry of the Word looks like. If you've ever been looking for a church, these are the things you should be looking for. These should be the priority concerns of every church that names the name of Christ and professes to herald His message. Four marks of a faithful ministry of the Word. The first mark is this. Faithful ministry speaks the truth. Here in this verse, Titus chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul is reminding Titus of his ministerial duty. His ministerial responsibility. This is what Titus was to be about. These were his primary responsibilities. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is what God has called Titus to do. And in a very real sense, verse 15 also summarizes well what God has called every pastor to do. To speak the truth of God. The word speak here can include all manner of speech. It includes private conversations. 
It can include teaching small groups of believers. It can include evangelistic preaching or preaching before the gathered assembly. Paul's mandate for Titus to speak encompasses every aspect of his verbal life and ministry, including personal conversations, public prayers, private counseling, letters written, and of course, supremely, the preaching and teaching of God's word before the gathered assembly of believers. It is the very thing that the elder or overseer is to be characterized by. We saw that back in Titus chapter 1 and verse 9. Elders are to hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that they will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict. The elder, overseer, or pastor in his speech is to both positively instruct and correctively refute. And Paul is restating this very thing here and applying it very personally to Titus, calling him to a life and ministry of speaking that includes both positive instruction and corrective reproof. The verb speak here is in the present tense, signifying that Titus is to continually operate with this kind of ministry, to continue in this ministry of speaking And he is to do so without ceasing. Keep on speaking these things, Titus. Don't stop. Even if they don't like it. Even if they don't want to hear it. Even if they demand you do something else. Keep on speaking these things. Paul was calling Titus. And Timothy, who is in Ephesus at this time, to the same kind of unrelenting, undaunted, unceasing ministry of the word. 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul wrote to Timothy there in Ephesus and he writes to him at the end of his life, the end of Paul's life, writing from prison, anticipating his final departure and he tells Timothy, preacher of the next generation to preach the word preach the word be ready in season and out of season reprove rebuke exhort with great patience and instruction Paul instructed both Titus and Timothy to the conduct themselves and their ministry in the same fashion to focus on the preaching and declaration and speaking of God's word. When Paul here tells Titus to speak these things, the things Paul has in mind immediately are the instructions about the Christian household that we saw and have studied together the last several weeks in verses 1 through 14 of chapter 2. Let me just remind you there, Titus 2, verse 1, let me read it for you. But as for you, Titus, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, 
in love, in perseverance. Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds." These are the things that Titus was to continually speak to and preach and declare. All of this household teaching falls under the general category of sound doctrine. Again, look at chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is literally healthy teaching. It's the word from which we get our English word hygienic or hygiene. It's healthy teaching. It's good for you. It is teaching that is spiritually nutritious and edifying. It is teaching that is firmly anchored to the truth of God's word and that produces spiritually healthy Christians. Sound doctrine is everything that the Bible teaches. And at the core of all sound doctrine is the gospel itself. The gospel is the nucleus of all sound doctrine. And at the center of this gospel nucleus is Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and coming again. Without the gospel and without a right understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done, you may have a right view of some aspect of the truth, but you will never have sound doctrine. Here in chapter 2 and verse 15, Paul is calling Titus once again to a faithful ministry of the word. A faithful ministry of speaking sound doctrine. Sound doctrine which always has a very practical implication for our everyday lives. As older men, older women, younger women, young men, and employees. Sound doctrine that is rooted and grounded in the life-transforming truth of the gospel message of Jesus Christ, as we saw in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Jesus must always be at the center of the witness of the word, of the ministry of the word. Jesus must always be the focus of the pulpit. And the proclamation. 
a second mark of a faithful ministry of the word is that faithful ministry encourages faithfulness. A faithful ministry of the word will encourage faithfulness on those who hear it. Paul says, these things speak and exhort. This is the first of two terms that follows Paul's command for Titus to speak. The two terms cover both the positive and the negative aspects of preaching ministry, speaking ministry. There is first the positive speaking ministry of exhortation and then the more negative corrective ministry of reproof. Here we have the positive side of Titus' speaking ministry and the word exhort. Titus is to exhort those who hear him. The word exhort means to encourage someone. It is to both promote and exhibit a hope-filled attitude through what is said. Exhortation is intended to give the listener hope. To build their faith. To encourage their spirits. To positively move them to action. It is the positive, edifying, encouraging side of the ministry of the word. It is that which focuses our attention on the promises of God. On the grace of God. On the enabling power of God. All these truths buoy our spirits, encourage our hearts, and build our faith. Jesus modeled this kind of positive ministry of the word when he was in his own hometown of Nazareth early on in his public ministry. He was in the synagogue on the Sabbath and he stood up to read. And the scroll of Isaiah was handed to him And he carefully turned to a specific passage from Isaiah 61. Jesus, standing up to read, read this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free those who are oppressed. To proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus chose to read a very positive message of exhortation and encouragement on that day. It was good news to the poor. It was a message of release to captives of recovery of sight to the blind, a message setting free those who were oppressed to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's a very, very positive message, a very encouraging message. Sometimes people don't even receive positive messages well, however, for just a little bit later they sought to push Jesus over a cliff. On another occasion, 
It is said of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 20, quoting from Isaiah 42, 3 and the suffering servant, says a battered reed he will not break off and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. Jesus is compassionate, gracious, merciful, and encouraging. A battered reed he won't snap off and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Jesus is welcoming. Jesus is calling. Jesus beckons you, even today, to come to him. If you're weary, come to him, and he will give you rest. If you're thirsty, come to him, and he will satisfy the thirst of your soul. That is the encouraging message of the gospel. That all of your sins can be forgiven. That all of the ways that you have failed to live up to God's righteous and holy standard can be satisfied through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. It's a message that goes out once again today to you, wherever you are, whatever's happening in your life, Jesus promises you forgiveness and eternal life if you will but trust in Him. Paul, too, modeled this kind of positive, encouraging ministry of the word. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 7 and 8 says, Paul says to the Thessalonian church, we prove to be gentle among you as a nursing mother. How how much more gentle can you be? I was up in my office this morning, and before I come down, I like to pray, and I like to look out through the windows, and I I have a vast view of the parking lot. <laughs> so I'm sorry, I'm spying on you. I see you walking in and I saw a, a, a mom, a young mom with her little baby in arms and she just kept kissing the baby like she couldn't stop. It was just a compulsion. Moms, you know what I'm talking about. That's how tender and affectionate Paul was with his own people. He was with them like a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, he says, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives because you had become very dear to us. Ministry of the word must be a ministry of encouragement and ministry of encouragement not only in word, but in affection for those who are under your care. Paul goes on, 1 Thessalonians 2.11, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. So Paul was loving them like a mother and exhorting them and encouraging them like a dad. Imploring each one of you as a father would his own children so that you would walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason, we also constantly thank God that you, when you, we, you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it is, really is, the word of God, which performs its work in you who believe. A faithful Ministry of the word will be one which is encouraging, uplifting, faith-building, and hope-inspiring because it puts Jesus at the center. Jesus, who is himself, the one who says, come to me. 
all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. How could it be any other way than encouraging? It can be all too easy for preachers to constantly apply the lash of God's law to the hearts and souls of God's people to beat them down, as it were, with the Word of God. To be sure, God's law must be preached, as we'll see next. But a faithful and balanced ministry of the Word will always apply the healing balm of God's promises and grace in the gospel upon the wounds inflicted to the soul by the righteous demands of God's law. The healing balm, make no mistake, the healing balm of the gospel is available for your soul today if you'll receive it by faith. Are you weary, heavy laden? Jesus promises rest for your soul, the deepest part of your being. Come to him. Thirdly, Faithful ministry is marked by the correction of error. Faithful ministry corrects error. To be a faithful minister, to faithfully minister the Word of God, can't be solely a ministry of positive encouragement. There are times when corrective reproof is necessary. Before the healing balm of gospel assurance can be given, the convicting law of God must be applied. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said. If you always enjoy sermons, the minister is not a good steward. He is not acting wisely who deals out nothing but sweets. Paul has shown the need for reproof and correction even within this very letter. Look back with me at Titus chapter 1 verses 10 and 11. Paul says there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. He's talking about within the church here who must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. Verse 13, for this reason, reprove them severely. Same word. So that they may be sound in the faith. To reprove is to rebuke someone for their sin and to seek to bring them to a place of conviction and godly sorrow over their sin so that they repent of their sin and turn back to the path of faith in God and pleasing Him. Jesus commanded that we are to treat sin very directly. Matthew 18, 15, He gives a whole pattern for dealing with sin within the body and he begins this way if your brother sins go and show him his fault point it out 
Reprove him. Rebuke him. In private. And if he listens to you, you've won your brother. While Jesus was gracious and encouraging to those who were convicted of their sins, he was also firm and confrontational to those who were full of pride. To those who are full of pride, the law needs to be applied. To those who are broken by their sin, the balm of God's grace is needed. Jesus called the Pharisees hypocrites, blind men, blind guides, serpents, a brood of vipers. And he issued then a series of eight woes upon them in Matthew 23. Warning them of the destruction that awaited them if they didn't turn around. If their hearts didn't become soft. If they continued in their current path, they would end up destroyed. Part of the pastor's job in preaching the full counsel of God is to preach the law of God. The commands of God. The demands of God. The law of God by its very nature is a reflection of God's holiness. And it makes demands upon us that we cannot perfectly fulfill on our own. The law leaves us condemned, guilty, needy. The law leaves us outside, estranged, the enemies of God, falling short of His righteous demands. We need to know that. For without knowing the righteous demands of God, we will never understand the depths of our sin and how far we have fallen short. And we'll never understand our need of God's grace and forgiveness. And we'll never understand the true beauty of Jesus Christ who came and fulfilled all the righteous demands of the law on our behalf. The law teaches us what God is like. It teaches us what He loves, what He hates, and what He requires of us. This is what theologians call the first use of the law. It is intended to convict us of sin and show us our need of a Savior and lead us to Jesus. Paul says in Galatians 3.24, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But theologians have also identified what they call a third use of the law, and that is that the law of God, rightly understood, helps us understand how God wants us to live as Christians. So faithful ministry of the word must include corrective rebuke and reproof. So there are both positive and negative aspects of faithfully speaking God's word. In the words of the preacher of Ecclesiastes, there is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant 
and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And so for the faithful preacher of God's word, there's a time to encourage and a time to correct, a time to exhort and a time to rebuke, a time to apply the law of God to the heart and a time to apply the merciful, gracious, healing balm of the grace of God to our heart. Law to the proud, grace to the humble. How can we know when is the correct time for each? Good question. I'm glad you asked it. Wisdom is required. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he says, We urge you, brethren, to admonish the unruly, but encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Those are good words of counsel to every preacher minister, and Christian. Apply the right corrective, the right prescription, the right medicine to the right person. And in all of this, we're dependent upon the Holy Spirit to do that work which no man can do. To speak to the heart. To enlighten the eyes. Convert the soul. Preacher's task is always to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. (laughs) And to acquire the wisdom to know which is needed in the moment. Fourth and finally, faithful ministry of the word is conducted with all authority. This speaking ministry of exhorting, encouraging, and rebuking or correcting was to be conducted by Titus with all authority. The message that Titus was to deliver, whether it be a message of encouragement or a message of correction, was to be conveyed with all authority. The word authority is being used here to convey the authority that stands behind divine commands. When God commands, He commands always from a position of complete and ultimate authority. Amen? His commands are to be obeyed because He possesses total authority as our Creator. He is our authority. We are accountable to Him. For He stands in ultimate authority over us. And because this is true, Titus is to carry out his ministry of the Word with all authority. Because it is the Word of God that Titus is ministering from. It is the Word of God that Titus is speaking and preaching and exhorting and rebuking. Titus has been entrusted with a divine message. 
and he is to speak with all authority inherent within that divine message. The authority with which Titus speaks is not some authority inherent within him as the preacher, as the messenger, but an authority that is God's authority extending through Titus's faithful ministry of the word. In other words, Titus's words carry authority only to the extent which they are consistent with the word of God. Paul told Timothy to preach the word. Not his own opinions, not the news of the day, not helpful tips for living a successful life, but the word of God was to be preached. And wherever the word of God is faithfully preached, God is speaking. As your pastor, I have no authority outside the Word of God. None. If I speak to you a word of opinion, that word of opinion has no authoritative seal. If I tell you that cantaloupe is accursed, that carries no weight. For that is outside the bounds of the word of God. And your conscience need not be constrained by my opinions. But if I declare to you faithfully and accurately some principle or command or promise from the word of God, that word carries the very authority of God himself. You see, when the Bible is faithfully preached, God is speaking. Now, I don't want to go too far here. And I want to be careful so as not to be misunderstood. When the Bible is faithfully and accurately preached, though my mouth is doing the talking, God is doing the speaking. Let me be clear here. I'm not claiming any divine authority in and of myself, for on my own I have none. But to the degree that I have rightly interpreted the Scriptures, and to the degree that I accurately communicate the biblical message, God is speaking through the message preached. Paul seems to be getting at this when he writes to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. He says, For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God. The message preached is the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Now certainly this principle is true in Paul's preaching to a far greater degree than it is to others since Paul was an apostle and at times received direct special revelation from God prophesying, not just declaring publicly the word of God already delivered but directly receiving revelation from God and conveying that verbally. Paul was able to do that as an apostle in a way that others cannot. 
nor should they try. But in a lesser way, it is true whenever God's word is preached. For whenever God's word is faithfully preached, God is speaking. I believe Peter was getting at this reality when he wrote in 1 Peter 4.11, Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God with all authority. Heinrich Bullinger put it this way in the second Helvetic Confession, one of the great statements of faith that came out of the Reformation of the 16th century. He said, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Wow. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Luther said it this way, "'Tis a right excellent thing that every honest pastor's and preacher's mouth is Christ's mouth, and his word is Christ's word. The word which he preacheth is not the pastor's and preacher's, but God's. Or Calvin, when a man is climbed up into the pulpit, it is so that God may speak to us by the mouth of a man." Or more recently, J.I. Packer, preaching has authority only when the message comes as a word from God himself. The preacher must speak in a way that is declarative. This isn't a dialogue. This isn't a back and forth. This is a declaration. Thus says the Lord. It is to be a declarative message that is sure and certain, that isn't waffling or halting, but that is bathed in the very authority of God himself. Spurgeon said this about his own preaching. He said, you are listening to a man who professes to speak by God and for God and to speak for your good. And his heart yearns over you. Oh, it is solemn work to preach. And I can say an amen to that. He says it is solemn work to preach, and it should be solemn work to hear. When we gather, do you gather to do the solemn work of hearing from God? Through the word preached. So preaching, true biblical preaching is authoritative proclamation. God's word preached makes claims upon us. It authoritatively calls us to respond in faith and worship and obedience. And it is our responsibility to hear that call from God through the word preached. Pastors will be judged on how faithfully they executed this task. And congregations and individuals will be judged on how faithfully they received the word of God preached. 
The authoritative nature of the ministry of the word is why Paul also says here to Titus, let no one disregard you. It means literally let no one think around you. Let no one do intellectual spin moves and disregard the authoritative message preached. Alyssa and Pastor Micah's great-grandpa Hebert explains it this way. It is the picture of a man attempting to rationalize himself into a position where he can evade these responsibilities and so continue on in his old sins. To listen a little and then go away unchanged. To hear a word from God through the word preached and pretend like that doesn't affect me one bit. Let no one disregard you. Remind them of these things. Remind them that they are responsible and will be held accountable for all the times they heard the message of God's gospel preached and rejected it. Let no one disregard you. The churches of Crete were known for their rowdy resistance to authority. We live in a not altogether different time. The churches of Crete were known for their rowdy resistance to authority, and I think the people of our own culture are known for their rowdy resistance to any kind of claim to authority. Titus was to take this mantle of authority and deploy it by faithfully speaking the word of God as the very word of God. Beloved, these are the marks of a faithful ministry of the word. They are the marks of a ministry that will faithfully and powerfully herald the gospel that transforms lives and continually revitalizes churches. May it be so in our own circumstance, in our own day, and in the days of our church to come to God's glory. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word, the scriptures, and for your word, the Son, whom we celebrate around his table, remembering his sinless life and atoning death, his victorious resurrection, his glorious ascension, and his sure and certain promise to come again. It is our great delight to herald the message of the gospel, that balm of the soul that brings healing and soothes the troubled conscience. Thank you, Jesus. We love you and we remember you as we gather around your table. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.